Welcome, everybody. Uh, you are tuning in for a fireside chat with the Library Company of Philadelphia. I'm Will Fenton, Director of Scholarly Innovation. The Library Company, for those of you who don't know it, is Benjamin Franklin's library, founded 1731, first subscription library. It's a little different today. Now it's a research library, and we have all sorts of tremendous fellows, like the one you'll hear from today, uh, that pass through and do all sorts of great research with our collections. Before I jump into our introduction of our guest, I always have a call to action. I normally uh, invite folks to join our mailing list, which, of course, I invite you to do through librarycompany.org. Right at the bottom of the screen, you can sign up for all of our events. But I feel like given the events that have been unfolding over the past several weeks, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that as of today, um, uh, Philadelphia Inquirer reported that more than a thousand people have been arrested for protesting. Um, and so if you feel like you can contribute to anything to helping get them out, help make bail, there's a great website called phillybailfund.org. And I will include a link to that as the very first message in the chat feature. Give a dollar or two, whatever. It's really valuable right now. So with that, um, this is a unique pleasure for me because I get to introduce a, an exceptional scholar, um, a very generous colleague, and of course a good friend, uh, Dr. Michael Good. Michael Good is Associate Professor of History and Political Science at Utah Valley University, where he specializes in early America and the British Atlantic with a focus on religion, political culture, and the history of peace and violence. He's the editor of Spectre of Peace, Rethinking Violence and Power, the Colonial Atlantic that was published by Brill in 2018. And he has a forthcoming article in the Oxford Handbook of Peace History. Um, most exciting, he has a book project that's very close to fruition, I, I uh, understand. It's called A Colonizing Peace, The Struggle for Order in Early America, which examines the role of peace as a language and a practice of government in colonial Pennsylvania. Notably, Michael was an Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Fellow at the Library Company. 2009. So with that, now that he's having a drink of water, I'd like to put him on the spot and invite him to lead this fireside chat. First off, I uh, want to say thank you, Will, for uh, the generous introduction, and it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, thank you to the library company for having me. And uh, so Will had asked me to uh, give this fireside chat uh, in part because of my work. I'm actually not an American Revolution scholar. Um, my work is uh, more 17th, 18th century in the pre-revolutionary period, but I do work on peace and violence and particularly on what the, what notions of peace mean in the 18th century in relationship to violence. And so uh, I did want to address the topic of sort of what I see as uh, the relevance of nonviolence in the American Revolution. Uh, it is very timely as, as we all know, it's, as we all know, uh, because of the George Floyd protests uh, which in my view are arguably one of the largest and definitely one of the most uh, racially inclusive nonviolent protests in, in U.S. history. Uh, these protests have sort of triggered debates about uh, what it means to have a peaceful protest. People are, there's a debate about, you know, uh, on the right uh, and on the left, uh, there's, what does it mean to be a peaceful protester? Um, so it raises questions about what is nonviolence or what constitutes nonviolence. Um, it, at heart, it gets a debate about the legitimacy of tactics, a debate about citizenship and democracy. Why study nonviolence? Uh, and this is an image, of course, a current topic here, the, the George uh, Floyd protest. But why study nonviolence historically? Uh, I think that there's 
uh, a range of arguments. Uh, one is it helps us to think about change in a different way. Uh, and if you, if you think about nonviolence, it just inevitably raises the question of uh, what is violence and uh, what is the relationship of violence to history. Uh, nonviolence is in some ways, it's, it's, well, it is a 20th century term. Uh, it, it's associated with uh, the Gandhian movements in India, uh, anti-war movements and human rights movements in the 20th century. What does it mean to, to then push that back and to think about nonviolence before the 20th century? Uh, and that just raises the question, you know, what does violence mean? Uh, and there's a set of assumptions, that I think, in my view, that historians have uh, carried with them in their reading of the past. Um, one in which, uh, one assumption, I think, of course, is that violence is uh, sort of, let's see if I can get this, yeah, uh, the prime mover of history. So um, historians, I think, assume there's, it's, it's implicitly or explicitly uh, stated that violence is sort of the engine of the past. Um, and, and, and if you have that sort of assumption, then uh, what does that mean? Um, what is violence? So um, the way in which peace studies scholars uh, attempt to try to define what violence is, they, they refer to it often as a breach. And in the past, and even now, it's sort of universally understood that violence uh, can include uh, either the intent or the actual uh, physical harming of bodies of human beings. Uh, but what about property? And here you have, uh, this is an image from the uh, George Floyd protests in Salt Lake City. Um, and the, the car that you see that's on fire there is actually a police car, a Salt Lake City police car. And is that violence? Uh, you know, what kinds of, what forms of property destruction would be considered violent and what um, what forms of uh, property destruction would be uh, deemed symbolic and therefore maybe perhaps nonviolent. Um, you can see here too, this protester who's wrapped in a keffiyeh. This image is actually almost like in a way a meme of uh, a Palestinian uh, confrontation with Isra the Israeli military in the sense that this protester has a keffiyeh wrapped around his head. But instead of throwing a stone, I, I don't know if you can see this, but uh, he has a water bottle uh, instead of a stone, right? So, you know, uh, there, it raises all sorts of unsettled questions, and I don't think that they're sort of easily answered. So why study nonviolence? Um, I think it's, it's important to think about historical change and uh, maybe challenge the assumption that violence is uh, the prime mover or the engine of history. Uh, if you think about nonviolence, uh, it adds complexities, I think, to the histories of violence. It adds a, a, a certain complexity to the histories of revolutionary movements. If your uh, basic assumption is that violence is, of course, essential to revolutionary movements, which a lot of uh, historians in the past have, have done, um, I think it, 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 it sort of relativizes uh, nonviolent action. And so what does it have, what, you know, how does it, our view of the past uh, change if we begin to sort of think about uh, nonviolence in relationship to violence and, and how that might alter um, causality or historical causality. Um, I would argue that historians uh, often 
even for moral reasons, uh, emphasize the reality of structural violence. And structural violence is something that uh, peace study scholars refer to as sort of collective harm. So in other words, uh, it's not just like an individual on the street being shot, but it's more like in, in the early American context, it would be the institution of slavery and colonization. And that form of collective harm, we know that, that this is uh, it's fundamental to the American experience. It's fundamental to colonization. And, and uh, without slavery and colonization, you don't have American history. And that these are fundamentally violent institutions, and they're deeply violent in multiple ways that historians have been very good at um, articulating. Gendered violence, racial violence, ways in which, um, say, for example, slavery manifests itself in uh, the domestic sphere with sexual violence. Um, and so there's almost like a moral imperative for historians to sort of emphasize the reality of that structural violence of slavery and colonization. And I'm not going to dispute that. I think that, you know, it's imperative for early American historians such as myself to emphasize that. But we can get into traps. We can, you know, we can romanticize violence. Um, and one, um, area where we romanticize violence is the American Revolution. Um, that's very complicated. Why? I don't have the time to get into that, I think, but it, one key element, I think, is it's wrapped up in nationalism and our national identity or our national identity. Um, another element of uh, sort of romanticizing or even affiliating with violence is picking historical moments that are, I think, um, affect positive change. So for example, the Haitian Revolution, uh, put in, in plain terms, the Haitian Revolution led to, uh, and it's an emancipation movement. And it's in the, in the colonial Americas, this is the uh, first time in which um, slaves success, uh, uh, an organized insurrection led to the establishment of an independent republic. Uh, and so like, of course, that's an important moment. And so historians want to sort of emphasize that. And, but it kind of bleeds over into when you start to think you see in uh, all revolutionary movements, this sort of romantic element of uh, violence and the, and, the, and the role that it plays in sort of like bringing about social justice. And so for the American Revolution, uh, that's like bringing about United States, the whole survey of early American history, in some ways, the the American Revolution plays a sort of a pivotal role uh, in creating the United States. And so uh, there's a temptation there to sort of romanticize uh, violence. Um, but I would argue that um, we, we, we really ought not to be romanticizing violence. We ought to recognize the sort of uh, fundamental reality of structural violence. But we also ought to not romanticize that violence, and we ought to re also recognize that uh, violence is in um, sort of a dialectical relationship uh, with nonviolence, um, and that there are elements of resistance that are nonviolent, um, and that would help us to check ourselves from romanticizing violence, or even, dare I say, overstating its effectiveness. Uh, violence is not inevitable. It's rarely inevitable unless certain conditions are met, right? And I'm not talking about the overarching structural violent, violence of slavery, racial violence, gendered violence that is just ever present. 
but what I'm talking about is sort of the violent uh, militarized confrontations like the American Revolution. It's something I teach students actually, that the American Revolution was not inevitable and uh, it takes weeks of uh, historical work to get my students to even listen to that as a possibility. Um, and uh, maybe, I don't know, I can't read your faces, so I don't know um, how inflammatory that idea is that the American Revolution was not inevitable, but it wasn't. Um, and in that case, uh, nonviolence is uh, intersecting with violence in ways that are often hidden in plain sight, sight for historians. Nonviolence is not nonviolent. Uh, so it's not the same thing as a cliched understanding of peaceful protest, which in and of itself is a, is a loaded term. Nonviolence employs force. And, and I think here that, that force and violence, and I must insist on this, is they're not synonymous terms. Uh, violence is force. It can be effective force, but they're not synonymous. One could be militant and nonviolent. Uh, there is an idea of militant nonviolence. Um, so nonviolence is intersectional with violence, but it's not the same thing. It's not synonymous with violence. It's intersectional. What is nonviolence? Well, peace studies uh, scholars uh, have a range of sort of like um, ideas about what constitutes nonviolence. One, it's collective. Uh, the problem here is that historians are not very engaged in peace studies as a field by and large. There's obvious exceptions. There are people who work in peace history uh, but by and large, historians are not really in, interested in histories of nonviolence as much as they are as violence. And so it's left up to uh, political science scholars, sociologists, and they often try, are studying not modern nonviolence movements. And so they have to come up with parameters uh, to run statistical analyses of nonviolent campaigns. And so uh, they've come up with sort of you know, implicitly or explicitly kind of three, there are many more, this is just a very simplified version of this, but three sort of elements. One is it's collective, but the, you know, often uh, peace study scholars like Erica Chenoweth, for example, or others may apply a certain rubric, like it has to be a thousand people for it to be count, to count as a nonviolent protest. Uh, well, what if it's 900, right? So it raises a lot of questions. Uh, missing in this, of course, is our, is an historical analysis of nonviolence. And what would that mean historically in relationship to violence? Secondly, um, it's disruptive. In other words, it's uh, challenging the status quo, status quo in some ways. And then thirdly, it's extra institutional. It's not sanctioned by authorities or the state. Um, I would also add that sort of, sort of that nonviolence is contingent, uh, or I'm sorry, that nonviolence in some ways reinforces contingency. Uh, Violence is not inevitable, again. Um, and so what does that mean then for um, the American Revolution? Well, first here, like, like going to uh, this map, that what you see here is a map of the proclamation line of the British Empire at the end of the French and Indian War, what we historians call the Seven Years' War, in which the British Empire acquired uh, territory from the French Empire in North America, all the way from Canada to the Caribbean. Uh, and the dividing line was essentially like the Mississippi River. And that's a tremendous amount of territory that the British Empire acquired in a short period of time. And they did it through uh, military action. I mean, the Seven Years' War, among other things, was just one through uh, an expenditure of military force, industrial 
sized military force. And so in that case, um, the empire then is left with this problem of management. And I would argue that the empire at this point is fundamentally weak. Uh, in this point in time, the empire had spent uh, itself into uh, a debt of around 130 million pounds uh, to win the war. I have taught in the past in, that this is the equivalent of $1 trillion in today's, um, in today's money. The empire, in, additional, in addition to being uh, in, enormously in debt uh, because of the war, they had to expend almost 400,000 pounds uh, annually to maintain garrisons. On top of that, of course, is the, the reality that North America was Indian country. And from the Trans-Appalachian West to the Great Plains, there are more than 200,000 Native peoples uh, who are now renegotiating their position in the, with the British Empire. And they did this both through nonviolence and violence. Um, this is uh, what historians call Pontiac's War, which uh, it's a loosely coordinated uh, Native attack on British military garrisons. But it's also uh, a, a time period in which native peoples are engaging in peacemaking, where different communities and different nations are negotiating for peace with the British Empire on favorable terms. And this took, this process took um, over three years or more, and it really doesn't actually end. It's part of the American Revolution. I can't address that for the sake of time. Uh, but the point here being is that the empire is uh, fundamentally in a weak position. And so they resort to um, non-military means of controlling the empire and raising revenues. And if you've taken a survey class in American history, either in high school or in college, you'll know uh, that among them were the Stamp Act and the Township Acts, which were taxes on items, including newspapers, pamphlets, land deeds, uh, but also paper glass and tea, all of which um, were items of consumption um, that indicate just the extent that the colonists were really integrated into the empire. Uh, one of the sort of stereotypes that my students, I think, have is that the American Revolution was inevitable in part because um, that the maturation of the colonies meant that there was some kind of inevitable separation. But actually, uh, if you look at in just even in economic history, in terms of economic ties, the empire, both through um, political culture and economic times, are sort of is tightly interwoven. Uh, and so this is the way I put it in my survey classes. In some ways, the Americans are more British and more into the empire in 1763 than they've ever been in their lives or in their history. So that means then the American Revolution needs to be explained, right? It also means that the American Revolution uh, the violent aspects of the American Revolution are non, not necessarily inevitable. So because of the relative uh, weakness of uh, the empire, um, civil disobedience is possible. And of course, it's possible through the Stamp Act protests. So the first round of protests, protesting um, the, first the Stamp Act, then the Township Acts, link politically the idea that liberty uh, is tied to the right of colonists to have a say in 
what taxes they pay, right? And this is where the, I, you know, the slogan is sort of uh, runs alongside the American Revolution, no taxation without representation. Um, and the Stamp Act protests are, I can't emphasize, and if, this is something that historians, it's very obvious. Uh, it's just amazing in terms of just how widespread they are. Um, so from Nova Scotia to Can the Caribbean, the power of collective action. So there are groups like the Sons of Liberty, uh, which include merchants and um, uh, wealthy artisans, but also laborers, women, and even enslaved people are all engaging in protests. Uh, there's a theatricality to this, uh, these kinds of protests. It involves street pr processions, uh, much like the George uh, Floyd protests. The burning of the stamp. So when uh, uh, customs officers who have been sent by the empire, the stamps themselves, which were supposed to be affixed on the paper documents to indicate that they paid the tax, um, those stamps were, those caches of stamps were burned. Also the press. Uh, and again, this is, it raises an issue of like, you know, print culture. Is print culture nonviolent protest? Um, not necessarily, right? But if it is connected to a wider collective action, then, then maybe. Uh, and it's, some of this stuff is, you know, quite radical. So newspapers would often, uh, uh affix or, or, or place on the newspaper masthead the skull and crossbones. And here they're saying, you know, go ahead. It's almost like they're daring the empire. Go ahead and put your stamp on my newspaper, right? So it's an act of sort of defiance. Um, but there's more than just uh, theatricality, of course. Oh, and I'm sorry, I, this is actually my favorite. Uh, here is the Pennsylvania Journal in 1765, sort of announcing because of the economic and political burden that the Stamp Act would place on them, uh, that this is, that, that it would lead to the death of their newspaper and more broadly to the death of really free speech, right? So. Uh, and here it is, the newspaper and coffin. It's a, it's a great, and so this is, uh, again, sort of emphasizes the theatricality of some of these uh, protests. Uh, but it's also clear that crowd actions are important components. Um, and some of this is, is pretty rough, right? So it involves uh, property destruction, ransacking of stamp collectors' property, running royal officials out of town. Um, there's a story, um, uh, you know, obviously, like, uh, British imperial officers being tarred and feathered, including customs officers. And this raises an important question, actually, about violence and nonviolence and the ways in which, uh, they sort of in, intertwine in complicated ways. Um, uh, imperial officials, customs officers in particular were targeted and they were done through this, uh, ritualistic performance that was quite brutal, which was, uh, tar, tar, uh, either stripping down or not of, uh, a, an, a, of a, an, somebody who was deemed as an offender, offender and then pouring uh, either uh, pine tar, pitch tar, some other sticky substance, and then daubing them with feathers. This practice predates um, 18th century British America. It goes back to the medieval period in Europe. It's a common practice. Um, it's not necessarily nonviolent, right? And so tar uh, could damage the skin. Uh, it took a lot of effort to sort of uh, remove the, the tar and the feathers. 
The tar could damage the skin. In one case, um, there was an officer who was frostbitten. And um, as they were removing the, the, the tar and feathers off, they were also removing uh, dead skin off the body of that person. And, and so it's, it's, it's horrifically, it can be horrifically violent by the sort of standards of uh, our notion of violence as physical harm to bodies. But at the same time, there's also an element of theatricality to it. Uh, the, the historian Benjamin Irvin uh, wrote a wonderful art article um, about 20 years ago in the New England Quarterly about the myth of hot pitch tar. That actually, um, unlike the uh, John Adams series and HBO where they depict the tarring and feathering incident uh, and they're daubing the customs officer with hot tar and it's extremely painful, um, Benjamin Irvin claims that there's no evidence that they actually used hot pitch tar. Uh, whether that, that that's true or not, it's clear that often they're not, and often then the, I, the, the, the point isn't so much torture as shaming. Uh, and this gets at a form of uh, what uh, peace studies scholars call indirect violence. Um, that includes you know, socially ostracizing or publicly shaming um, those who are complicit in, uh, uh, in the regime of uh, the, you know, ensuring that the Stamp Act is, is to be assessed. Um, and so this gets into the question of like, what's violent, right? Um, and violent and, and what's nonviolent. And, and so these kinds of acts, like it's one thing to do street demonstrations and property destruction. Uh, what is tar and, tarring and feathering? It is at once physically violent. It is at, and, and, and whether or not it does permanent harm, it also inflicts uh, what I would call an indirect violence of shaming. Um, and at the same time, it's also uh, deliberately channeling rage in directions that steer clear of uh, public executions. And so all of these elements are like sort of uh, wrapped up in this one, one sort of action. And you might think that, well, that's pretty extreme. Like, you know, was lynching possible? Um, it's very clear and sort of, if you do, if you're an historian of the 18th century, uh, you know that public executions of enslaved peoples were done, uh, especially in slave societies and very routinely, um, but was lynching possible for uh, white people? And I would say, yes, uh, it was possible. Uh, and here's one example, the Boston Massacre in 1770, uh, the officer captured Captain Preston uh, in the confrontation between Boston colonists uh, and a company of uh, British soldiers that led to 11 colonists uh, being um, shot and five being killed. Um, one of the concerns uh, during this incident that, that is that Captain Preston might be lynched by a mob. Uh, there was precedent for this. There was a similar uh, incident in Scotland in the 18th century in which a British officer uh, was had fired into uh, 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 ostensibly perhaps an unarmed crowd or, or at least a crowd of civilians. And it led to uh, that officer being lynched. And so the uh, possibility there of lynching is always an option. Um, whether it's realistic or not, it's hanging over the, the head of political leaders. And so, you have sort of in the American Revolution a sort of a complicated negotiation between um, how do you 
engage in coercive and forceful protests uh, and that could involve in some ways very violent shaming or even harm to uh, the bodies of customs officers, but not in a way that actually draws um, a violent reprisal, uh, a military reprisal by the British Empire. So it's a balancing act. Uh, and so nonviolence, of course, then uh, provides, nonviolent tactics provide sort of an avenue. Uh, uh, one of my colleagues who was a contributor to the Specter of Peace, who's written on uh, the Stamp Act protests as sort of, it's sort of emphasizing these as nonviolent tactics, um, Micah Alpa, uh, he would argue you, ne you need more than effigy burnings, and I would agree. Uh, and so one of the sort of um, elements of the resistance movements in, in, that was effective in the American Revolution are the non-importation campaigns and the boycotts. They start during the Stamp Act protests, uh, but they continue with the Townshend Act protests. And so there's print uh, culture that sort of assists with sort of providing an ideological frame. Uh, no more famous of a, um, of a uh, sort of the penman, if you will, of the American Revolution is John Dickinson is what uh, uh, he's remembered as, right? So the penman of the revolution at the same time, uh, he's arguing not for uh, necessarily a violent revolution, but he's arguing for nonviolent protests, which include uh, in his most famous track, the letters from the American farmer, um, uh, petitioning um, and boycotts. Uh, and these are key in terms of, you know, so John Dickinson sort of like, uh, you know, uh, provides some ideological sort of um, shape to the kinds of nonviolent organizing that's been going on uh, in relationship to sort of the, the violence, right? The, the struggle of figuring out, um, you know, what kind of calibrated forms of violence uh, can we engage in and what's effective, you know, so, uh, and that includes both violent actions, including indirect violence or public shaming, uh, and nonviolent actions um, that are in relationship to violent actions. Uh, and I'm going to quote from the historian Jane Calvert, whose um, work on John Dickinson is very important. Uh, often, uh, as Jane Calvert notes, these letters have been interpreted by contemporaries and even historians as a call for revolution, but they're not. Instead, they're written to prevent a revolution in some ways by giving Americans and what she calls, and I quote, a peaceful and productive outlet for the frustrations with British policy. I would add that you would use the word nonviolent. You could switch out the word peaceful and insert the word nonviolent um, by giving Americans a nonviolent outlet for the frustrations. And, and through the non-importation campaigns, boycotting British textiles, uh, which women participated in, uh, and it actually provided a, an important way for women to uh, become politicized. These are very effective. Uh, there's some estimation that the boycott campaigns uh, before 1776 uh, reduced British American dependence on British exports by 36%. And it provided uh, economic pressure uh, to um, uh, force the British to repeal both the Stamp Act and the Township Acts. Um, over the long term, right, it's, it's ambiguous, right? Because uh, after the repeal of the Township Acts, Parliament retains the Tea Act, and then the struggle continues, right? But it's important to, to sort of recognize that 
in some ways, the tarring and feathering, um, as dramatic as they are, uh, the, the more widespread sort of non-importation campaigns, arguably, uh, were more effective. Uh, and I would even go further and say that, yeah, yes, even Tom and Payne, Thomas Paine, uh, and a lot of, as many of my students and as many of you know, uh, Common Sense. Uh, the publication of Common Sense in 1776 was, uh, you know, it, it galvanized the patriot movement ideologically, um, and Paine is calling for independence, uh, full independence, and it's militant. And uh, historians are quick to sort of point to common sense as sort of part of that militant tradition that led to, uh, you know, George Washington, the Continental Army, and um, the American, the militant part of the American, or the military part of the American Revolution. But even here, too, um, within non, within violent actions or nonviolent actions that lead to violent action, it's important to remember that Thomas Paine here is engaging in part of that larger um, sort of constellation of nonviolent activities uh, in print. Uh, common sense, you know, here he's slaying the King of England uh, with a pen. So finally, uh, the on the third point of what peace study scholars sort of think about as important uh, markers of nonviolent action, uh, that, that they have to be extra institutional. In other words, they're not authorized by uh, authorities. Um, it's outside of authorized channels, in other words. So this includes, of course, the Sons of Liberty, uh, later the Committees of Correspondence, and uh, the most famous example of a successful sort of dramatic nonviolent protest, I would argue is nonviolent, uh, is this form of property destruction known as the Boston Tea Party, in which 50 activists um, dressed as Indians dumped 90,000 pounds of tea in the water and in, in, in sort of in defiance of the British Empire's attempt to sell tea with a tax from the British East India Company. Now, this leads to uh, the coercive parliament passing the coercive acts, and it does lead to sort of the militarization of conflict. Um, and historians, I would rightfully would uh, are, are quick to sort of point that out. But the action itself, again, this is it, it, it contains all of the elements that as, uh, peace study scholars would identify as nonviolent action, and it has a certain power in of itself. Um, and it, I would also add uh, that it is not inevitable, even at this point, that there is going to be uh, uh, a militarized uh, break from the empire, even at this point, right? So again, it's it's in assessing whether or not this is an important uh, element of nonviolence or not. You have to keep in mind uh, always that that the um, militarized violence is is not inevitable, even at this point. What about African Americans? And this gets sort of like the legacy that, uh, in some ways, leads to um, Black Lives Matter. It's obvious that. Uh, African-Americans participated in the American Revolution uh, in the militant and militarized parts of the American Revolution. So one can think of um, the, um, the Ethiopian regiment and uh, Lord Dunmore's regiment. Uh, you could think of the on the Continental Army side, um, the Rhode Island regiment uh, in which African-Americans participated as infantry. You can think of African-Americans participating and non-infantry ways in the Continental Army, and these are and uh, these are obviously important. Uh, what about what about what I would consider perhaps non-violent um, aspects of the African American participation in the American Revolution? And so here we have like Phyllis Wheatley, for example, 
I wonder if we could, like think back to some of the, the sort of the three the three elements that um, peace studies scholars think of when they think of what constitutes nonviolent protest. It has to be disruptive. It has to like um, upset the status quo. It has to be extra institutional in some way. It has to not just be completely sanctioned by the state, but also there's an element of collectivity, right? It has to be collective. Well, this is one individual, right? Um, still uh, Wheatley. Uh, an emancipated um, African-American woman who was born uh, in Ghana or Gambia, uh, came to Boston in 1761. Uh, she was purchased by her enslaver, uh, John Wheatley, who is a tailor. She learns to read and write in English in a year. So she's clearly a gifted uh, uh, and talented uh, individual. She's manumitted in 1773 in part because uh Partly because of public shaming as her fame grew and her literary talents became better known. Um, and as she was being championed, by the way, by white evangelical ministers in New England, um, they pointed out that we, uh, John Wheatley was a hypocrite for enslaving her. Uh, and so she's manumitted uh, and she continues what I would, uh, I'm, I'm following in the line of the work of Christopher Cameron uh, in the black prophetic tradition. And so her poetry uh, points out there's, a, there's like a through line through her poetry during this time uh, is that blacks were eligible for salvation and deserving of citizenship. Um, and there's and it's not just Phyllis Wheatley, obviously. There are uh, petitions by um, enslaved African Americans, for example, in Massachusetts, in which they're arguing for um, their freedom on the grounds that that they are deserving of liberty as much as um, patriots. And it's important to note that these petitions both use sort of the uh, 18th century Republican language and also the language of Christianity. And they sort of sort of powerfully intertwine. Um, and these slave petitions, so uh, this is very famous, like Alan Taylor, uh, The American Revolutions, so oftentimes historians are quick to note that these petitions uh, don't really uh, work. They fail. So Alan Taylor sort of says that, you know, these petitions fail. What they mean by that is that these petitions don't lead to emancipation. Um, and so if we narrow our view to just this moment, uh, if we think of these individual actions and collective actions as part of a broader sort of nonviolent movement, um, they fail in the sense that they don't lead to emancipation. But at the same time, uh, the time horizon shouldn't necessarily be constrained to just this moment, right? Even the American Revolution itself um, is widely known that African Americans fled plantations. And so if the Civil War was the, the uh, greatest slave uprising in American history, arguably the American Revolution was the second greatest slave uprising in American history in a way in which enslaved people resisted often was just was running away, which took an enormous amount of courage, effort, um, which led to uncertain outcomes, which included eventually their re-enslavement in the Caribbean. And yet, uh, this was very destructive. And, and you could argue that the massive uh, uh, disruptions that occurred through uh, enslaved people running to British lines during the war is not only a classic nonviolent tactic, but it's very disruptive. Uh, and also very extra institutional in that it challenges uh, white supremacy and uh, the institution of slavery.
Okay. What is the takeaway here? So uh, the takeaway uh, is, uh, and I recognize I'm just breezing through uh, the history of the American Revolution and also leaving out uh, very deliberately the military parts of that history. Um, what, do we, what do we gain from this? Well, uh, one is, I think, um, maybe if you noticed uh, implicitly, and I didn't really bring this up as much in the, in the talk, but um, the study of nonviolence is a part, a study of how conflicts claim that their actions on one side are legitimate while their opponents are not legitimate and they're not acting in a politically legitimate way. And one of the ways you do that is by saying that your opponents are violent. And so um, it, during uh, the protests that occurred uh, from 1765 up to um, 1776 and beyond, uh, the ways in which organized groups uh, in print and through their actions pointed to uh, the empire, the, the one thread was that they were behaving violently and illegitimately violently. Um, so uh, the Sons of Liberty would say, uh, cry that the empire was enslaving them uh, and improperly because they were property white male subjects. Uh, women would, uh, who were participating in the revolution pushed back on the, these gender limitations. Um, enslaved people uh, pointed to the patriot movement's hypocrisy and said that they're engaging in illegitimate violence by enslaving them. And of course, the empire um, also pointed to uh, these protests and said, uh, they're even something that we may um, regard as a nonviolent uh, action, even by today's standards, which is, includes street protests. The empire might regard some of these, uh, and I'm talking about um, the crown government, or the British public or parliament, that, that some of these are actually illegitimate because um, they are politically opposed to these actions. And so therefore, uh, you tar the brush of your enemy by saying that you are acting illegitimately, violently. But the other thing that, I, this is sort of the takeaway, and I'm, I'm almost right up to the, uh, uh, the ending point here. How do we weigh then armed resistance versus nonviolent organizing? Particularly the problem here is when violence and nonviolence are so intersectional. Um, the problem is I have no problem uh, for historians sort of complicating uh, nonviolent organizing by pointing out the ways in which they engage with violence and they facilitate with violence and they're intersectional with violence. Uh, but we tend to often romanticize violence and we will romanticize violence or we see armed resistance as sort of the sine qua non of revolution. Um, then we begin to sort of make the mistake of thinking that violence is inevitable and violence is sort of the primary en engine of history. Uh, so that implicates how we both see the past. So for example, what if the American Revolution had, what if I said the American Revolution had already been won by 1776? How does that change our notion about what effective uh, action and effective resistance? How does that change our notions if we uh, entertain that possibility? Uh, the modern analog, and this is why I have the Black Lives Matter uh, Utah chapter, um, it's, it's an image here, is that it's easy to see sort of street protests, property destruction. Uh, but as anybody in Black Lives Matter will tell you, uh, they've been doing this for years. Um, and people that participate in nonviolent organizing, um, they're doing these things day in and day out. It's hard work. It takes um, uh, countless... Uh, days, months, and years of people's lives. Um, and 
so when you see these, uh, what seems like spontaneous protests, like the George Floyd protests, undergirding them are actually just a groundswell of uh, a lot of nonviolent organizing that has some parallels with the American Revolution. And then, of course, there are some parallels that, that are not similar. Um, and it's often, I, I would just sort of challenge historians and others to see nonviolence for what it is. It's often hidden in plain sight and to not just to overlook it uh, in relationship to thinking about uh, violence. And with that, I think, Will? Excellent, thank you, Michael. So while I give folks a moment to um, uh, put together their questions, I wanna start with sort of a question that arose for me early in your talk. You were talking about violence as a breach, which is, I guess, the peace studies definition of violence, right, as a right. breach. And if you're thinking about a breach, a breach you know, being a, a break from a law, from agreement, from a set of norms, from a code of conduct, right. then peace is really sort of the status quo in that case. Um, and I, I'm curious to know, like, in the period of the American Revolution, which we make the mistake of associating with violence all the time, are there people who are talking about the maintenance of peace very self-consciously in this period? And sort of people that- People as in historians or- uh, I, I talk about historical actors. Oh, historical actors. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Actually, that, so the maintenance of peace is actually a related and very profoundly uh, intertwined discussion with the nonviolence. And so a lot of the things that I said about nonviolence are also true of peace and the maintenance of peace. And I would argue that in the 18th century or the 17th century or during the American Revolution, um, people in the, were very concerned about what I would call right ordering. And that's how I define um, the idea of uh, what peace means. Uh, and so peace can facilitate uh, sort of violent outcomes. Um, you could think of the king's peace or imperial peace. But peace also is fundamentally about violence regulation, about regulating or calibrating mm -hmm. violence in ways that, that some groups consider acceptable. So, you know, the questions you have to ask is peace for whom, uh, peace on what terms? Yeah. And, and, and so, so the maintenance of peace and peace as a sort of a power struggle is an ever present re reality. Um, and sometimes those realities are not as visible to historians as breaches like um, a, a pitched battle, right? Or uh, a public execution. Uh, so there's uh, slave codes. Um, so there's just different ways in which um, uh, sort of the maintenance piece or peacemaking as a struggle uh, is, is there, but you have to look for it. So we have a couple of folks here that are interested in sort of the um, the, the, terminolo the terminological clarity that we're dealing with when we're talking right. about nonviolence. Andrew Murphy starts by saying that there there, there might be a difficulty in the actual term nonviolence because it's defined by what it's against, right? Yes. By against violence, and he he asks, does using the term peace or peace studies avoid this challenge, or is there a better term out there? Let's start there. That's a great question. That's a great. Thank you, Andy. Uh, so that's a great question, and. Um, uh, peace studies scholars do sort of um, wrestle with this. Um, and, and so, I mean, in fact, actually Gandhi obviously in some ways wrestled with this as well. So nonviolence was established as a term to distinguish it from sort of um, the idea of pacifism and, and non-resistant pacifism. So in other words, like you could think of conscientious objectors who um, won't engage in 
actions that disrupt the status quo, but for religious reasons of religious conscience, you know, may not or, or will they decide not to serve in uh, armed conflict. Um, and they may do so for reasons because they're, they're religious pacifists. Nonviolence then was sort of, in a way, a 20th century term. It has a little bit of an older etymology, but it's, it's fundamentally a 20th century term to sort of get away from that, to talk about um, peace, at, you know, engage the maintenance of peace, different forms of peace, uh, but being active about it, right? So, so nonviolence is, is saying that it's not like non-resistant pacifism, it's employing force. But then it, it opens up all these problems, as um, um, Andy suggests, which is that it's dependent on the definition of violence. What is non-violence, it just directly um, engages with what is violence is a question. And, and so, yes, peace study scholars, um, I think, do uh, grapple with that. Uh, at the same time, I don't think historians really grapple with this because peace studies talk about, there's a, a, uh, uh, an analytical framework that peace study scholars use, which is like negative peace and positive peace. And negative peace means um, the absence of violence, which is theoretically impossible uh, because of structural violence, like racism, for example. But then there's positive peace, which is, means thinking about peace in ways that aim towards, and what peace studies scholars would say is social justice, or um, a, a, a particular, what I would call historically, uh, an assertion of a particular ordering. Uh, and so peace studies scholars would call that positive peace. And, and positive peace as a term then gets away from just like nonviolence as not violence. It's saying there is something there. It's, it's like, it's like positive liberties or positive rights. I think the term is inadequate. And actually, uh, this is a role that historians can play and, and other scholars in some ways, because I think peace studies, uh, needs a push. Uh, and, and that these kinds of things have to be historicized. And so these terms are inadequate. Um, and I think that it's not just enough to do run statistical mathematical models or to think about it in theoretical terms or just think about it even in modern, you know, just look at modern nonviolence movements. Uh, and so maybe perhaps a, a study of history, thinking about this in historical ways, then gets us to maybe better terms. Mm -hmm. We're well, not going to give an opportunity to play the historian here because Nicole Dresser's question gives you that opportunity. Um, you've sort of addressed the first half of her question, which was really about how peace deviates from nonviolence as historians think about it. But then if we go back to the 18th century, how do 18th century conceptions of peace evolve? Um, or oh. is, it, is it stable yeah. anyway in the 18th century? Right, it's not as stable. It's obviously... Uh, and so that would be another uh, fireside chat. <laughs> so it's very complicated. It's obviously not stable. And uh, the notions of, again, peace for whom, peace on what terms. And so that evolves over time. What does it mean when people think about the imperial peace? Um, it's, it, what does it mean if we think about a slaveholder's peace? Uh, that doesn't mean peaceful. Uh, in other words, we think of peaceful as some sort of idyllic setting in which uh, violence is absent, and that's not the case. But by slaveholders' peace, I mean, how do slaveholders think of right ordering? And believe it or not, they engage in peace language uh, to uh, control the people that they're enslaved, or in, in an attempt to control the people they're enslaving. 
Uh, so peace does not necessarily mean an absence of violence. Uh, and so it's not a static term. Uh, and it, it's, it's historically contested and it's rich. Um, peace can also be used as a discourse. In other words, it's a language and it's also a set of practices to critique violence in different ways. And that can be very historically uh, specific. Mm -hmm. So it just depends on time and place. And it really is almost like a, a whole nother discussion. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do is to get historians to sort of in, to take peace studies seriously and to actually engage in these questions and start to historicizing peace more concretely. So we've got an interesting question from Peter Olson Harbich. Um, how do you think about the relationship between nonviolence and democracy? Should we evaluate nonviolent tactics any differently when they're used in democratic or non-democratic regimes? That's a great peace studies question. <laughs> so um, I have a colleague of mine uh, who is a sociologist, uh, Matt Chandler. He works on um, what it means to have nonviolence and nonviolent democratic movements in authoritarian regimes. Uh, and his particular focus is uh, in uh, the Middle East. And so is the question about the distinction between non-authoritarian versus democratic regimes or? Um, I, I can't speak for him, but um, my reading here is, do we hold it to a different standard when it's being pursued for democratic right. ends or anti-democratic ends? Yeah, so it's possible that we hold it to a different standard. Um, and I assume he means scholars um, yes. rather than commentators, but um, peace study scholars, not necessarily. So peace study scholars try to study this uh, phenomena of nonviolence in a global, they have, they, they rather take a global view. Um, and they would argue actually that nonviolent movements are far more significant uh, in authoritarian regimes than people would realize. Mm -hmm. So um, what I think a lot of peace study scholars try to do is just to elevate those elements of nonviolent organizing and compare them to sort of classic uh, nonviolent campaigns that we think of, which are associated with democratic regimes. Um, so that's what peace study scholars do who are not historians. And I think it's up to historians to sort of explore these questions historically. Um, and you know, over time as well. So it's a great question, and it's not—it's not a. I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. Yeah, this is killing me because there, there there are like several great questions in the pipeline. Yeah, sure. Like one minute left, so I'm gonna have to choose one. And I apologize to Devin and Rachel. We won't be able to get to your questions this time, but I hope you'll forgive me. Um, Cassie Good asks, how how do you measure which nonviolent protests were effective, and what does effective even mean? Yes, that's a great question. I love these questions. Yes. Um, yes. Okay, I'll answer it in one way. So one answer is, um, let's just go back to the Phyllis Wheatley uh, question. So um, one way of measuring effectiveness is if we narrowed, is to, to sort of look at chronology. If we narrowed our time horizon to just the, to the 1770s, was Phyllis Wheatley's poems were these Massachusetts slave petitions um, effective? Uh, well, how do you define effective? If you define effective as immediate emancipation, they're not effective. It doesn't lead to emancipation. And in fact, uh, after the American Revolution, uh, one could argue that the racialization of democracy is intensified and slavery is further institutionalized uh, constitutionally and through practices. So you could say this is like Alan Taylor suggests, this is in some ways a 
a deep failure. If you define effectiveness in another way, um, you know, this doesn't go away. The nonviolent organizing that happens um, continues, even in, in New England, for example. So you have enslaved in individuals or manumitted individuals um, who are petitioning the courts, uh, are arguing for either manumission or reparations. Quack uh, Walker, Belinda, you can think of uh, in the early Republic period of the free black communities in the North uh, that are organizing both in print uh, and um, on the ground in uh, trying to destabilize uh, slave societies in the early Republic period, which includes, by the way, encouraging enslaved peoples to run away again uh, in the Republic. And so if we draw, so if we see Phyllis Wheatley and these slave petitions and sort of a greater time horizon, mm -hmm. they then, if we link them as part of a common effort, then perhaps they're not a failure, are they? Right. In some ways that they can say that they're effective. And of course, it's not the end of this, the earlier public period is not the end of the story, but really neither, neither is the civil war, right? The civil war militarily destroyed slavery. And then what replaced it? You know, what well, replaced it? So much. It's like Jim Crow, right? And so the struggle moves on, right? So this is, this has been great. Um, you've given us a great teaser for your book. If uh, we have anyone from Penn Press tuned in, all of this could be yours. That's you right. must be on the cutting edge of bringing peace studies and historians together. Um, thank you, Michael. Uh, I really appreciate you coming in and giving this very timely talk. Looking ahead to next week, we have a little bit of a surprise. Instead of doing a normal um, a fireside chat, we have our Juneteenth event. This is our big annual speaker, and we've moved it online. So it's totally free, and you can tune in. It's with Walter Greeson. Walter Greeson is a fabulous scholar. He led an amazing seminar that we had. I think it was last spring on uh, Afrofuturism. Incredibly dexterous scholar. He has a talk called Unfreedom, the Limits of the 14th Amendment Under Reconstruction. Also very timely. So you can register for that. I've included the link in the chat. You can also find it if you just go to librarycompany.org slash calendar. It's like the first event on that page. So definitely sign up while we still have spots. With that, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Al. Thank you, all.